Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for market intel, forecasts, and strategies. Hello, I'm Michael Bull. Uh, this show is brought to you by Bull Realty for customized asset and occupancy solutions. Visit bullrealty.com or reach out to me personally. My email is an easy one. It's michael at bullrealty.com. Well, we have another great show for you today. You've all heard of AFIRES, the Association for International Real Estate Investors focused on commercial properties in the U.S. And they do an annual survey of investors around the world and their thoughts uh, moving forward. And it's always very interesting and because things are changing so quickly at this point, they've done two this year. Uh, we covered the first one and now the third quarter 2023 Pulse report is out. And we'll have a link to this report in the show notes at CREshow.com. You also be able to find it at AFIRE. Dot org. But let's go over some of the highlights. Uh, please uh, welcome uh, my guest. Uh, Gunnar is here with us again, and uh, you're CEO of AFIRE, and it's good to see you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Michael. So, um, we uh, first of all, I got to get your ideas after going through this and, and, and seeing the survey and talking about it. Kind of what's the overall feeling or the, the theme that, that you're hearing from these international investors about U.S. real estate? Well, certainly the tone right now is very different from where it was perhaps a year ago. Um, it's it's not a time of, of uh, celebrating in the streets. There's not much in the way of euphoria as, as investors. Um, there is certainly a point where we seem to be assessing revaluation of existing portfolios, especially office. Um, but there is a general sense right now of pause um, as the capital markets have paused, as debt has become less available and certainly much more expensive. Um, the, the, the banking failures that took place in the spring are continuing to have echo effect in terms of uh, issuance of new debt. Um, it is happening, but very, very slowly. And, and certainly you're not seeing the transaction volume that you saw before. So there's a general sense of uh, perhaps people preparing themselves for, or for the eventual return, but not a real uh, confidence that that return to health is going to take place over the next couple of quarters. Um, there is a, a certain negativity in the air, I think, at this point. Um, however, we've been here before as, a, as an industry. This is part of a natural cycle for real estate, uh, but it is, uh, it, it's going to be challenging for a while as we're kind of reassessing uh, values uh, within the existing portfolio and at the same time trying to find new opportunities to invest in going forward. Gunnar, what are the survey results related to the allocation of potential investments in the U.S.? versus other countries? Are they shying away from the U.S. a little bit now or maybe more interested, maybe thinking they can get properties at a lower basis? Interestingly enough, I think the U.S. is continuing to benefit from the fact that it, even though for whatever issues that we have, both uh, from a capital market standpoint and from a, uh, from a political standpoint, uh, it's not as bad as as some other countries. We we have some volatility here. We have some issues. Apparently, we can't get a speaker of the house at the moment. Despite those issues, certainly what we're seeing is volatility on a geopolitical basis around the world. Uh, we're also seeing economic 
distress around the world. And the U.S. is seen as a safe haven. We're seeing a 34% net increase in intended allocations for real estate in the U.S. from these international investors. And that's pretty consistent with what we've seen over the, the decades is really a continued growth in interest in, in U.S. commercial property from around the world. Um, I think part of it is, you know, ask yourself the question, where do you want to place your money in real estate? The U.S. has such depth in terms of the, you know, the depth of markets. We have, you know, easily a dozen global class institutional cities in the United States. And most countries have maybe one or two. Uh, so this is a very broad, deep market. The U.S. dollar continues to be uh, supreme, I guess, would be a great way to talk about it. Um, and there continues to be confidence in the rule of law and property law here in the States. Yeah. What are their thoughts on uh, cash versus debt, equity versus debt? Uh, are some of these foreign investors looking to put more equity to work here and less financing? And what's their thoughts on, on the debt market in the survey? Well, I, I think the debt market, we continue to be... Um, not exactly sanguine about where we are in the debt market. I think you've you've seen the departure of those regional banks uh, and the concern about the refinancings that are taking place. If you had next to free money uh, and uh, that you were using uh, for your debt uh, previously, and suddenly you're having to pay six seven percent for that uh, capital. Uh, it changes the economics of any given deal. So that's part of what we're watching for is that incoming distress. Um, there are a lot of alternative debt providers. A lot of investors are interested in investing through debt. Most have debt funds at this point. So there are opportunities, especially as, as capital restructurings occur, as the bill comes due in terms of uh, mortgage refinancing and having to refinance at a, at a higher basis. Uh, so it, it's... I mean, the good news is there's opportunities for debt investors. Uh, the bad news is if you're looking for new debt, it's going to cost you and it's not always going to be a slam dunk in terms of getting the proceeds you're looking for. Yeah. And the property level investors uh, investing in the U.S. from foreign countries are more of them uh, just using cash, just using equity alone? I think a lot of them are looking, the ones that are moving forward. So you're not seeing a lot of transactions right now. Um, but where you're seeing some opportunistic plays, a lot of them are working with a lot more equity than they would before. Uh, now, institutional investors tend to work at a lower leverage level than some of the more independent investors. Uh, but I think you're seeing uh, perhaps even, even lower uh, loaned values than perhaps you saw in the past in terms of going in. So I think there's a, uh, there is a possible play here if you have enough equity to be able to go in and, and take advantage of some of the deals as they occur. Not to say that there's a landslide of that at this point. There's just a few deals that are occurring in some of these markets. Um, but a lot of them are working uh, mostly with equity. Yeah. We're talking with Gunnar Branson with AFIRE, Association of Foreign Real Estate Investors, about their, their survey. And, and Gunnar, I'm curious on the foreign investors you know, buying the U.S. I mean, you know, commercial real estate is traditionally a very long-term hold, right? And I'm assuming for foreign investors, possibly even longer, right? So do, and, and when your survey, there's anything that indicated that some of them were maybe more interested uh, in, in real estate today, thinking they might get it at a, at a lower basis than when the market was so competitive? Certainly. I think there's a lot of folks that actually have been uh, allocating funds to the U.S. that have not invested them to date because they've been looking for more discounts. Uh, so I, I do think that there is a, 
that there is a distressed market or at least a market for it when it reveals itself that the capital is looking for that. Um, I think the uh, kind of the approach to the market right now is to a certain extent understanding when the turn occurs and no one really knows when that is occurring. Uh, I think uh, that that date keeps being pushed out um, in terms of when uh, we may see kind of a return to recovery. Uh, but I think it, it's interesting to me because the, the the regular economy is doing pretty well. And I think it's it's not unreasonable to describe what's happening right now in the overall economy in the United States as being a soft landing. Uh, you're not seeing, you know, massive unemployment. You're seeing actually, you know, adding of jobs. Um, and it seems that the consumers are remaining strong, stronger than we expected after the rise of interest rates. The real estate industry, however, has a completely different story. We're working through um, our difficult times. And depending on who you talk to, there are expectations that uh, the next couple of quarters, if not the next four quarters, are going to be uh, challenging. This is going to be a very difficult time. Uh, I think you're already hearing the slogan, stay alive till 25. Um, I think this is this is when we earn our stripes as an industry during these times. And that's what we're facing right now. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, sometimes I've called um, some of the long-term investors who, who uh, buy commercial properties, you know, for their family offices and things, and <clears throat> and their funds. That I call them in a, on a hot market and and sell them a property, and the, I'll get a chuckle. And Michael, thanks for for getting in touch with us. But you know, when the market's this hot and there's this many buyers, you know, we're not buying. You know, when when the cycle turns a little bit, you know, we'll be busy again. I'm like, I know, I know. I, I was just staying in touch. <laughs> so, you know, if you're gonna buy low and sell high, maybe you, you you buy it. But to your point, you know, when when is the very low point? And I guess you don't have to buy at the the lowest point to make money. We certainly saw that in the last recession, right? Well, there's there's an old cliche of not wanting to catch a falling knife, um, I and that I think <laughs> that's part of the discussion at at this point. Um, and it's tough now when you're seeing you can pick up a CD with a five percent uh, yield at the moment, um, and that challenges people's uh, discipline from the standpoint of understanding that real estate is a you know five to ten year hold. Uh, over that five to ten year period, you're going to see, you know, probably uh, outstanding uh, returns and in excess of what you could get from from uh, treasuries or, or buying CDs. So I I think for the next year it's going to be tough. Um, you're not going to see you know outsized returns uh, over the next couple of years. But to your point, this is the basis that you want to get in on. You want to see it when it is not hot uh, and be able to uh, ride upward. And, and certainly that's been the history of real estate as we go through these cycles. The question is when, the question is, can you do it? The question is, is the seller acknowledging the decrease in value uh, or are they holding? And so it, this is where it's tricky. And it, it, there is no uh, free lunch in this business. And I think a lot of the, the savvier investors are taking their time and paying very, very close attention to how things are changing. Um, now, this is a typical structure, a, a typical kind of cycle where we're seeing restructuring, capital restructuring, you know, looking at um, you know, what can be fixed from a debt and equity perspective. But there's also other forces at play. Uh, we certainly are seeing that over the last 10 years, uh, the office market was overbuilt. Um, and that certainly seems to be clear now um, as you're seeing 
80% of the, the office that's out there, at least, uh, seems to need uh, some capital infusions in order to be up to date with uh, the modern tenant. Even if you get beyond the kind of work from home and, and you know, return to the office discussion, which, you know, is, has been rampant, certainly, uh, there is this feeling that, you know, 70% of the office product that's out there was built before 1990. Uh, so by many people's standards, that implies a certain level of obsolescence. So these buildings need to be brought up. You look at the best buildings, the buildings that have been built in the last five to 10 years, they're doing fine. Um, those office buildings are fully leased at, at above market rates, um, and those are great stories. But you get below that to the rest of the market, and you're seeing a, a lot more distress. Uh, some markets more than others. You think about Washington, D.C., or San Francisco, or Chicago, uh, you're seeing great distress in terms of, of these older office buildings. Um, and there's a lot of question, certainly in the media uh, and in all our conversations around conversion. I think over the last year, there's been more confidence that it is possible for some of these office buildings to be turned into multifamily, which would be helpful given the housing shortage that we have. But there's a lot of obstacles to that. Some of it's physical in terms of the engineering of these buildings. Some of it is is uh, regulatory. It, you know, the, the local municipalities, their zoning can sometimes stand in the way of these sorts of conversions. And it takes time to work through those various city councils, et cetera, in order to make a building convertible. But that being said, uh, a majority of our members believe that we're going to see uh, quite a few conversions over the next five years. Um, and not just office to multifamily, but office to uh, hospitality, office to uh, storage. I mean, not every office building makes a good apartment building. Um, but also, interestingly, and I did not expect this, a third of the respondents uh, expect to see some level of urban farming uh, or high-rise farming as a possible conversion of some of these most distressed uh, office buildings. I think if the basis of the value of the office drops enough, there's a lot of creativity that can take place. And one of the things that gives me confidence about our ability to convert the existing product into something that's more useful for the future, whatever that, whatever that use is, is when you look at the history of New York in our lifetime, uh, where for 10, 20 years, uh, Lower Manhattan was considered completely obsolete. And the only option was to tear it down and maybe build a highway, uh, all that 19th century industrial warehouse. Fast forward to the late 70s, uh, or actually the early 70s, you started to see uh, landlords desperate <laughs> for tenancy, uh, providing illegal uh, leases uh, for people who wanted to live and work in the same space, and most of it was artists. Um, but that that grew over time, and eventually the city of New York and the state of New York allowed that to be a legal uh, lease. And then uh, lofts became an entire new uh, multifamily product, to the point that now in many markets you see brand new apartment buildings built to look like 19th century industrial lofts. And downtown Manhattan, is some of the most expensive real estate in the world, something that 30, 40 years ago was declared completely obsolete and uh, impossibly, uh, impossible to use. So I think as we look at our cities and we look at the investments that we make there, um, even an office building that loses an amazing amount of value currently, that's not the end. That in some ways is just the beginning of what it will become. 
And, and Gunnar, your foreign investors and the survey, um, you know, a lot of, I guess, foreign investors uh, like shiny offices, right? It's It's been a, a popular sector for, for decades. What are their thoughts on CBD versus suburban office uh, at this point? It seemed like there was a lot of talk about suburban uh, being the, the, the option, the, the choice people liked. Well, I found this kind of interesting is that um, the expected value loss uh, was higher outside of the CBD. Um, and I'm, I'm looking at my numbers right now to make sure I have this clear. But I, it's, it's interesting to me that after a couple of years of people talking about the secondary markets and the, and the suburbs as being most attractive in terms of new investment, that seems to be shifting a little bit as people are seeing a holding of value perhaps in some of these CBD, certainly in office, uh, CBD office in the gateway markets. When you look at the suburbs or the uh, or the uh, um, the secondary markets for office, you're seeing a little bit of drop off in terms of confidence in them holding their values or losing more value. So it, it is interesting that seems to have returned more to a long term norm uh, versus uh, where we were a couple of years ago. At the same time, however, when we ask about different cities, uh, the cities that they expect to you know have the most. Uh, value change over the next 12 months, uh, Washington, New York, Atlanta, uh, Boston, Miami, Austin look pretty good. Um, and the decrease is, is looking in New York, uh, in, in, in some of the other markets, um, Chicago, San Francisco, um, DC. Um, but I, I think that's the, that's part of what we're watching, and we will not know the full extent of this until you see more transaction. I mean, right now, you just don't have uh, the transactions which tell us exactly what the values are. Yeah. And is some of that uh, thoughts from the survey uh, respondents that uh, maybe there'd be a bigger decline on office values in a city like New York or Chicago because there's just really more of that product concentrated in one place? I think that's a big part of it. Uh, another part of it is how mixed use is that neighborhood? So you saw this writ large in several parts of the world, which is as COVID receded and people started coming back to the office, the markets that bounced back were those markets where you had a mix of uses. So compare uh, the West End of London with Canary Wharf. Canary Wharf looked a lot like um, CBDs like Chicago or uh, DC or San Francisco in that uh, it was dead far longer than, than the West End, which was lively right away. Um, I think part of the return to office is dependent on how far away your workers are um, and how painful it is for them to get into the office. Um, those markets that are more monoculture where it's all shiny office buildings for a few miles are going to have more challenges than those markets where next to an office building is a fantastic place to live, another place to eat, a school down the road where people can live, work and play within 15 minutes, where it's more walkable, where the traffic is not as bad. And that's part of the reason why some of those secondary markets enjoyed a lot of interest over the last few years. When you think about your commute times in Nashville, they're complaining that they now have to spend 15 minutes as opposed to five minutes getting to work. Uh, for anyone who lives in a major city, that sounds pretty great. Um, that I think that is something we have to watch. And as we come into the recovery, uh, the, the assets that are in a mixed use environment or are mixed use themselves 
are going to be advantaged versus uh, the monocultures where it's miles of shiny office buildings. Yeah, that's a good point. We're we're just bringing out a property that's uh, multifamily and mixed use, and you know, and and to your point earlier, it's an older mill conversion, so it's got you know all that aspect that the tenants want, and then the able to walk out and. You know, you just get so much more demand and, and so much more upside in, in the mixed-use environment. I, I live in a mixed-use environment in Atlanta, and it's just it's just fantastic. You know, one of the issues that uh, uh, a lot of our clients are dealing with today is, is the rise in insurance costs. So did your respondents key in on that uh, and their thoughts there? They're concerned about it. And I think this is going to be a major topic for all of us over the next uh, year or two. Uh, we're seeing dramatic rise in premiums, especially in, in coastal regions, southern Florida, and even in places like California related to fire risk. And even in some cases, uh, the insurance companies are withdrawing completely and they're not allowing uh, any new insurance policies to be written in some of these riskier areas. Uh, this is certainly a continuation of the concern around the pricing of risk around these more vulnerable areas. Uh, we asked the question back in, in January, February, uh, if if the investors felt that their pro formers accounted for climate risk in its in their pricing, and an 82 percent of them said no. Uh, part of what I think insurance companies are doing right now is they're starting to price the risk. They're starting and they're pushing hard, so the insurance premiums are rising fast, and that, along with certainly rising interest rates, changes the economics of any given deal. And that doesn't mean it's impossible; it just means now it's going to be a lot more expensive, and you're having to account upfront for the risk price. Uh, you know, maybe you get lucky and the storm never happens, but the risk is still there. There is a percentage of that that is risk, especially if you start looking at this in a, on a portfolio basis. So this is of great concern. And even if you do not believe in climate change, which I think that's a tougher belief to hold on to these days, even if the amount of storms that we're getting are normal in terms of the number of storms that hit us, the, the fact is that over the last 30 years, we have been aggressively developing in some of the most vulnerable areas in our country to things like drought, fire, and storm. And as we have developed more and more in those areas, the losses for any given storm or disaster in terms of fire um, are higher. Therefore, the insurance companies themselves, in order to stay in business, have to charge more for premiums. So this is a natural cycle, even if you don't believe that climate risk and rising sea levels are an issue. But if you add that to the equation, then you realize that, that what we're doing right now is exactly what anyone would have predicted in that the cost of risk is rising. Um, it is being accounted for. And that means many of our investors expect that there is going to be certain areas where they will not invest in uh, because of the added cost, because the risk is now being recognized. And I think that should be a concern for everyone, uh, not just investors, but the folks that are in these regions, the, the municipalities, the, the people that live there, work there, um, that we are seeing the tip of this spear. And this is not going to go away. You're not going to suddenly see everything normalize in insurance very, very quickly. I think it's going to continue to rise, which is only rational. That is exactly what you would expect if there is a rising cost to risk. Yeah. Talking with Gunnar Branson with AFIRE about their survey of international investors uh, interested in U.S. real estate, and as you read the survey results and 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 you talk to to your members out there, where do they see opportunities uh, in the U.S. right now? Are there certain sectors or property types or are 
What do you what do you feel? Well, I mean, there's this whole category within real estate of alternative assets. Um, so as a lot of investors are chasing better yields, they are looking at um, alternative investments. So data centers have been particularly uh, active in the last couple of years, and they continue to be a great investment if you understand that business. Uh, believe it or not, movie studios have been a fantastic investment class. Uh, they're small. These are smaller sectors, but they continue to be attractive. Um, you know, cold storage, uh, other kind of kind of niche plays that are kind of warehouse uh, commercial that that have a very particular kind of uh, bent. Uh, single family rental, especially in places like Georgia, Atlanta, has been really a hotspot for that. And institutional investors have been investing quite a bit uh, in single family rental um, across uh, across the United States. But certainly, uh, Atlanta has had a lot of that as the housing shortage continues, and as owning a house right now, from an economic standpoint, is probably less of a good deal for someone than rental at the moment. So new, there, there is a whole class of renters that seems to be expanding and single family rental maybe addresses that kind of middle uh, kind of section between large apartment buildings, garden apartments and owning your own home. So I think that addresses a real need in our economy. Uh, so these alternatives are continuing to be very uh, popular and and are still working very well. But realize, of course, that institutional investors over the last, say, five years have really been shifting their in new investments away from shiny office buildings and towards multifamily. Um, multifamily rental continues to be a very attractive asset class for these investors. And as you look at the just supply demand uh, characteristics of our current market, there is not enough supply and there seems to be quite a bit of demand that we're not catching up to in terms of building new housing. So those areas continue to be attractive and they're not just attractive to the investors, they're attractive to the banks, to those who are providing debt. So it becomes a lot easier uh, to move forward. Now, easier as a relative basis right now, it's difficult for a lot of things, including multifamily, but it is more possible uh, to go forward on a debt perspective. Yeah, the, the multifamily world has certainly seen great uh, increases uh, in their values. And, and you talk about supply and demand, uh, not enough uh, supply of, of rental housing, and, and, and then we have uh, more demand. It's the same way in the, in the investment sales market. We have an apartment group here, and it's like, you know, there's really still a lot of demand from buyers for, for multifamily and not enough sellers. And, you know, I think one of your, your uh, questions to your uh, respondents is, you know, their, their thoughts on values you know, moving forward, right? Anything on a jump out to you there? Nothing really jumps out. Um, I think, it, you know, it's basically according to expectations, uh, office is certainly the most impaired at this point. Um, and you're seeing, uh, you're seeing, uh, you know, some people think that they're going to see some decrease in value in, in some of their multifamily portfolios. We did see a ramp up um, in the years, uh, you know, 21, 22. Um, and there seems to be that we're kind of at a pause at this point in terms of values. Um, you know, rents are not being increased the same level. In fact, there's some rent decrease taking place in some markets uh, in terms of apartments. But it's, you know, I, I think it's uh, probably a better bet. It's harder to deny the just basic supply demand characteristics. Yeah. Well, Gunnar Anson, thank you for joining us, sir. Great information as usual. Thanks for being on the show. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Michael. All right. Thank you. And thank you for joining us around the country. And you can get a copy of this report. It's very interesting. I uh, urge you to, to download it. You can get it at afire.org. 
You can also get it at our show website, which is CREshow.com. Well, thanks for joining us. Hey, please share the show. Please reach out to us. And until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh. And join us for America's Commercial Real Estate Show. America's Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bullet Realty. For commercial brokerage sales and leasing in the Southeast U.S., contact our show host by email at michael at bullrealty.com. By Commercial Agent Success Strategies, 21 incredible one-hour agent training videos. Learn more at commercialagentsuccess.com. And by Lumet. For senior housing, healthcare, and multifamily financing, visit lumet.com. For more podcasts and videos, subscribe and visit CREshow.com.